As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the On Farm podcast. It is Anna here with you this week. We're currently, as I speak, in the midst of Scottish food and drink fortnight. And so it seemed uh, rather pertinent that we um, talk or hear again from Christopher Trotter, who is a well-known food writer uh, from Fife. When we first spoke to him, or when our colleague Sarah Anderson first spoke to him, he had just published another book. So um, I'm going to let Sarah uh, take over again for this episode, and you can enjoy a chat, uh, or her chat, with Christopher Trotter. And uh, then next week, we will be back with some fresh, fresh content for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Christopher Trotter is a well-known name, a mainstay of the Scottish culinary scene. He has run a Michelin-starred kitchen, hotels, restaurant. He's a very fervent advocate of local, sustainable, high-quality ingredients. He also has several cookbooks under his belt, including The Whole Hog, The Whole Cow, which he authored, uh, co-authored with Carol Wilson. He also wrote The Scottish Kitchen. He is a big champion of Scottish food, but more particularly the food and drink from his much-loved kingdom of Fife. Well, I have the honorary title of Fife Food Ambassador, but, I mean, that literally is just an honorary title, basically because of the work I've done in the past to help promote the food from my region. Um, And I'm really quite passionate about the food from my region because Fife is an extraordinary area within Scotland because we have absolutely everything that Scotland produces. We also produce pretty much everything uh, in Fife. But I also really like to follow um, the seasons. So I really like to encourage people to be aware of what's going on outside, uh, what's growing in the fields, what's being produced at certain times of year. And this, of course, goes most particularly for wild produce. And being Fife, we're surrounded on three sides by water. So we have uh, fantastic seafood, but also because we have these lovely, long, slow growing seasons, which Scotland has in particular, um, as opposed to the rest of the world. So things come into season, they have fantastic flavour. And I just feel it's something we really need to be telling people about. And I've been trying to do that for many years now. What prompted our podcast recording is your newest book, Coasts and Waters, a British seafood cookbook. Tell me, how did this book come about? Again, it's all to do with, you know, how can I get people to be aware of what we have in our own country and all the rest of it? And then I suddenly became aware that with Brexit, um, a lot of our fish, which normally was sent abroad... Um, I mean, and the statistic there really shocked me. 80% of our fish is all, was all exported. Um, so we're really not using enough of our own fish. 
Um, so I had the idea of trying to encourage people to use our own fish um, because, you know, we've got a lot of fishermen out there who are struggling uh, to survive. So that was the first thing. But I thought it was a really good opportunity also to try and explain to people that there aren't just you know, five fish in the sea, because the, 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 there are five favorite fish, aha, FFF, that people use, and that's salmon, tuna, prawns. You know, tuna doesn't come from these waters. Salmon will be farmed. Prawns probably are Pacific, and the only actual wet live fish is sole and haddock. And I just wanted to say, and excuse the, the, the expression, there are plenty more fish in the sea. So the book has, focuses on some more slightly unusual ones, like dogfish or hus or hake, um, and again, because they're wild, they have their seasons. You know, I mean, Scotland, uh, two hundred years ago, people would literally follow the herring as they went round the coast, and and the fishwives would uh, arrive in places ready to gut and fillet the herring. Now, I'm not suggesting we we go back to that, but I am suggesting we should be aware when certain fish come into season, make best use of it, and then when they are more scarce or they go breeding or they go spawning or as they have done this summer because it's been so warm, they've all cleared off to the other side of the North Sea, they've become more scarce and therefore we need to be using more of the sorts of fish that are available. So go into your fishmonger and don't go in with an idea of what you want, go in and say to the fishmonger, what have you got? and what's good at the moment, and then buy that fish. So it's, it's changing people's perception of what they do. I think that's a really interesting point about seasonality. And certainly before I'd spoken to you, it was not something I considered at all. I think you know, inland, I suppose, I knew about the salmon run um, salmon spaw spawning season and, and, and catches on, on our rivers, but absolutely not at sea. And from a farming perspective, uh, where I have more experience, if the, the nation's cattle headed from the west to the east one season or all the sheep headed from in, in the opposite direction, we'd certainly know about it. And we don't know enough about what's going on beneath the waves. So certainly I'll be keeping a much closer eye on, on seasonality when I buy Fish and Future. I'm really interested to know how you go about creating a cookbook. How do you create a new recipe? Well, one could argue that there's nothing new under the sun. So, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time now because I've written not only the, the books I referred to earlier on, but I also have written uh, seven little vegetable cookbooks, uh, kale, carrot, tomato, I think I mentioned them. And uh, so when I, when I did those, I set about obviously going through all the recipes that I use on a regular basis. I have a mass of cookbooks from chefs and food writers that I respect and I use their ingredients. And I may well change a few um, you know, things. And this is where the seasonality bit comes into it. You know, you can say you can take a tomato and then you think, right, well, what am I going to do with that? What, what other thing is in season at the moment? So you, you begin to, and one's imagination starts to work. And I'm very lucky now. I can, I can imagine flavors in my head or whether things are going to work just because that's what I do, I suppose. So that's really how the recipes come along. And, and with the fish one, it actually started because I was doing, a, my wife's a, a photographer, so I would do a recipe and she would do a photograph and we were working with a, a, an online a bunch of um, producers in Argyle and they wanted a recipe and a photograph on a monthly basis. So I was doing that, but I was really keen to make sure that it was a seasonal 
uh, option. So for instance, if we did oysters, I would only put a recipe up for oysters in the traditional month when oysters are really, really good. Um, so it was sort of autumn time, November time, because traditionally you couldn't eat oysters when there isn't an R in the month because they're spawning. Now, as it happens with farmed oysters, it doesn't really matter anymore. But I still think it's quite fun to think about oysters at, at that time of year. Or for instance, the other one is, is mackerel, which is one of my favorite fish. And we really don't eat nearly enough mackerel. It's full of wonderful nutrients. It's extremely good for you. It is plentiful still, um, but it's really quite good at this time of year. Uh, so I, in the book, it says use mackerel in the summer months. Um, it's not to say you won't get it at other times of the year, but it's really plentiful at the moment. Um, and all wild fish are like that. You know, sole is the same thing or lemon sole, um, hake, um, hus, dogfish, catfish. Um, I mean, there are literally hundreds of fish in the sea and uh, we, we see so few of them. And it really disappoints me the number of people who go into a fishmonger and they say, oh, you know, what a fantastic display you've got there. Can I have a couple of haddock, please? Fishmongers get very, very frustrated. We need to be more adventurous um, and we need to be using these other fish because we are going to run out otherwise. And, and this is the other tragedy is that we are overfishing the seas. But if we can just learn to use some of the other ones, we'll still give fishermen a living and we'll get the variety and the quality and, and the fun, to be honest with you, of, of cooking something different all the time. I want to go back a little bit to your point about sustainability, because obviously that's another issue that's been very, very high profile recently. There are people who I think have been turned off eat, eating fish because of their concerns about sustainability. Is fish something that we can eat sustainably, would you argue? Yes, in, in, in a word. Um, I think, you know, if we, we are careful with the seas, um, if we, as I said, if we eat a wide variety of fish, what, whatever it is that's being brought in, um, and don't turn our noses up at certain things. So the fish, fishermen have to dump fish at sea because this is what will happen. If, if they bring, if they land something slightly unusual and they don't have a market for it, it will, it will be dumped back in the sea. And that is, to me, is an absolute uh, disaster. So, you know, we need to say, what have, you, what have you got? What are you catching? What is sustainable out there? And buy that from them. We must learn how to do that. And the other one is, uh, um, I'm going to mention the, the fish farming um, business, which I think is, to me, very, very important. We, we, over the years, they farmed salmon in Scotland. And um, there are one or two, which I think are outstanding, the, the Shetland people, um, who are right in the outer, you know, outer, outer islands. Um, and they're extremely conscious of their, um, you know, they are safeguarding uh, and they are looking after the environment. And the other one is the Hebridean um, Sea Company. And I, I may as well be honest here, they have actually sponsored the book, but I really looked long and hard at what they do and where it is. And it is in the Outer Hebrides, it's not off the island of Mull, um, it's off Barra, um, and their methods are much, much better than they used to be. On, on contrary-wise, if you go into a fishmonger and you can buy things like sea bass, it will just say it's sea bass. But unless you ask the question, it may well be farmed in Honduras or Greece. Now, I wouldn't, I mean, having been to Honduras and seen some of their fish farms, I wouldn't go near it with a barge pole. So again, fishmongers need to be a little bit more honest, perhaps. But I think also we need to be asking the questions. If you, if you go into a butcher, you know, they will tell you which field um, a cow has come from because they have to by law. 
I exaggerate to make a point, but fishmongers don't seem to have this same um, need. So we as, as a consumer need to be asking the questions and not buying sea bass. The tragedy, is, of course, is the reason we buy sea bass from Honduras is it's cheap. But that doesn't make sense, does it? Because you've still got to ship the thing right across the, the, the oceans to get here. And there's a hardworking fisherman out there, you know, going out in, in all weathers um, to haul in delicious, uh, wonderful, home-produced fish. Um, so, yeah, if you, if you buy carefully, eat carefully, and probably less, we all eat too much, a fish can be absolutely sustainable. But we need to be more courageous about the varieties we are prepared to eat. And when you're buying salmon, make sure it comes from a respectable producer like the Shetland people or, as I said, the, the Hebridean people. I'm really interested in your point about uh, traceability. Obviously, again, on the agricultural uh, side of the equation, traceability is so important. As you say, not just down to which field an animal came from, but when it had any kind of doses, what it's been fed, when and where it's been moved, tracing back through the generations. Traceability is so important and, and very much in the public consciousness what did you see, for example, on, on a farm in Honduras, which gave you cause for concern? Well, I think when I saw them in Honduras, they were literally holes in the ground, inland. I mean, they were seething with fish. So the fish had no room to move around particularly. Um, and I'm sure once they'd been harvested, they would then the water would then be, be refreshed and all the rest of it. But it just seemed to me that they were being grown in a pretty inorganic environment, whereas the salmon... Um, you know, they are, the cages are usually quite far out into the waters and the, the sea movement going backwards and forwards allows the fish to be able to do what they do, which is swim, um, builds up the muscle structure, which, of course, is where the texture is and the flavour is. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, they were too crammed in and we used to get this awful flabby textured salmon. So they've done all these things. And the other thing that the, the um, Highlanders do is they use the fish called RAS, W-R-A-S-S-E. And this is a natural predator. And it feeds off all the <clears throat> little bugs and things which will live off salmon. And as opposed to having to spray them with chemicals, which is what was happening 30 odd years ago, um, and killing the, the, the seabed. Uh, whereas now it's a wonderfully natural, organic way. They, they harvest, they farm far, far less. And of course, being in Scotland, being on the islands, they are aware that they're being watched. You know, there are people who, who go out and, and, and watch them, whereas there's nobody doing that in Honduras. I've, I can't really say for the Greeks, I'm, Greeks, I'm sorry if I'm slandering you Greeks, but because I've never been there. But I've seen firsthand Honduras and it's not I would never buy a farmed fish from, from Honduras. Going back a little bit to the Brexit effect on fishing, have you spoken to anybody in the fishing industry? That's a really good question. I, mean, I it is this is an interesting one as well, and I don't want to slander Scottish fishermen, but I'm about to. You know, they are quite a sort of insular bunch. I'm living in the East Nuke as I do. You know, it's it's very interesting. You go around the East Nuke, and you have the Pitt and Weem, you have St Monants, um, we have Anstruther, and they're all fishing communities and, and a lot of them still go out, they do lobster, they do crab, quite a, a very close-knit community. And uh, 30 years ago, farmers were very, very similar to this, um, but they've realised that to get their product out there, they can't just dump it at the farm gate and wait for somebody else to come and pick it up and sell it. And as we now know, we have farm shops everywhere, you can buy stuff online and all the rest of it. 
And I think fishmongers in, in conversation with them are beginning to realize that this is what they have to do. And south of the border, you get some Cornish fishermen. Um, and I think it's incredibly exciting. They, 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 they get their fish, they get their catch in a boat. They put it up on social media saying, we will be landing at wherever it is at this time we have got. And people will turn up in their cars and the fishman will come up to the quayside with his scales and he'll sell the fish. Now, a lot of people have done this. They said, the thing about it is it's still as expensive as it was when he went through the fishmonger. And I say, well, you know, well done them if they can still do it. They're cutting out the middleman. You are getting unbelievably fresh fish and they'll probably gut it for you and clean it for you right there on the quayside. Um, and I, to me, that's just a terrific, it's like a fish farmer's market as opposed to a farmer's market. So I think a lot of people need to learn from that in Scotland. Um, and the fishermen really do need to learn that. But we've got a really wonderful local one who used to, down in St. Monance, um, and he used to sell a huge amount to restaurants and stuff. And then suddenly not only was there Brexit, but we've also got lockdown. And um, you know, his market uh, just disappeared um, overnight. So he's opened a fish shop um, and, and he's lucky where he is because he has, you know, people who are prepared to spend a bit of money. But the display is fantastic. You know, he has whole fish. It's not just, you know, the usual fish counter with fillets of this, fillets of that, <clears throat> and that's it. Um, so they need to use a bit of imagination and um, they need, to, they need to, to be there. He gives, um, it's quite interesting, you go there and he gives you a free lemon um, with your fish, provided you spend a certain amount. I mean, I just think it's lovely marketing because you go away and talking about it. And that's really, I think, what fishermen are beginning to realise is what they have to do. But we as, and they've also got to start telling people, this fish, <clears throat> this is how you can prepare it. This is how you can cook it. This is what you can do. It. Or treat it like you would a sole or treat it like you would this. And that indeed, to go back to the book, is exactly what the book does it takes an unusual fish and say, look, if you've got a sole recipe or you've got a salmon recipe, you can use this fish in the same way. I'm really interested to hear that. I was actually in Aberdeen recently and the van in front of me uh, was emblazoned with the sign fishbox.co.uk and similar to so many companies now which do a food, almost like a food subscription service. I believe these, these are fish coming out of the northeast and sent all around the, the UK. So that, that was good to see. I, I think these things are coming. But I think you make a really good point that there could be some really helpful examples from, from the farming industry in terms of di diversification and finding more direct routes to the market. The scope for a kind of an exchange of knowledge there. Because even in my 15 or so years of, of, of working in the farming industry, I've seen a huge transformation in, in, in farm diversity. Well, not just farm diversification, but diversification with a view to getting new and, as I say, direct routes to, to customers. Looming large in all of this, though, is the reality that most people will still buy their fish at the supermarket. You have very, very high ethical standards <laughs> in, 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 your, in your food procurement. But, but the reality is that most people still buy a lot of their food. Ergo, they'll buy a lot of their fish in the supermarket as well. What, what kind of behaviour do you see from the big supermarkets with regards to, to the fishing industry? Again, it's an interesting question. I'm afraid I'm pretty ignorant about that because I just don't buy uh, my fish from a supermarket um, in the main. I mean, every now and again, I will do in, in, the, in the same way as I never buy meat from a supermarket um, because I just don't think it's, it's as good as the stuff you can get from a butcher. And a butcher, you can look in the eye and say, where's this from? Whereas there's nobody to look in the eye in, in, a, in a supermarket. I understand, though, that Morrison's apparently, they've, they now have their own trawler 
which I think is very exciting. So they are actually, you know, it's going straight from sea to supermarket shelf without we're cutting out the sort of middleman, as it were. If that's where people are going to get their fish, but please, if they're going to do that, can they ask the same questions? You know, you go into a supermarket and there'll be a pack of, of sea bass. And unless you pick it up and turn it, turn it upside down, you won't necessarily know it's not from the UK. And these are the questions that people need to ask. I'm just going to mention one of my, my heroes, actually, is a chap called Guy Grieve. Um, and he has a wonderful company called the Ethical Shellfish Company. And they're based on Mull. <clears throat> and I think he found the whole lockdown business extremely difficult because he was hand diving for scallops, you know, and, and the whole business of dredging. And this is something I do feel quite strongly about is the damage. I mean, never mind the fish farms with their, their chemicals, which damage the, the, the seabed dredging for scallops is also incredibly damaging uh, for the seabed. It really does, it can destroy it. Whereas if you hand dive, you are, you know, you literally go down and you pick them off the, the seabed and you, you put them in a basket, which is why they're expensive. Um, but they're lovely and clean. They don't have a grittiness. So it's people like Guy Grieve who are, you know, flying the flag for ethical uh, fishing. And, um, you know, uh, the Ethical Shellfish Company, I think, are, are doing a fantastic job from that perspective. But again, we need to ask the questions. If you're buying scallops, ask if they've been hand-dived or if they've been dredged. And please, if they've been dredged, don't buy them. Consumers, we are relying on the fishing industry to fish responsibly. We are relying on our fishmongers, our fish sellers to sell responsibly and to be open about what they've got and, and where it's come from. But the people selling the fish, the people who catching the fish are also relying on a consumer base as well. So all parties involved have a kind of responsibility here. They all tie in together. Getting back to the book, one of the things I'd, I'd really like to know is when you're out talking to people, when you're out talking to schools, what kinds of questions do people ask you about cooking fish? I think some people find it a bit of a mystery. I think some people are a bit afraid of cooking fish. They are. I've just done, I do cooking workshops, I do cooking classes. And in the last couple of days, I've had some lovely people. And I always show people how to fillet fish because they don't necessarily need to know how to do that. But it's important that you see a whole fish and you know how to take it apart, so to speak, and how to cook it whole without the skin on and that sort of thing. And yes, you do get people who are a little bit squeamish and, and school children in particular. I can remember a couple of years ago, I was working with the, the Rotary UK um, and we, we did a dinner. I went into the, the local high school. We cooked a dinner with a bunch of teenagers um, for about 50 Rotarians and their guests. I mean, it was the most wonderful occasion. And some of these kids had never really cooked at all. And on the menu, I, I made sure we had mackerel. And the, the reactions from some of these kids, you know, there they are, they live, they go to school 20 meters from the sea or half a mile from the sea, and they'd never had fresh mackerel before. You know, they may have had it smoked or whatever. And their reaction often was, you know, ooh, nasty, slimy, whatever. But once they got stuck in and they realized, you know, this is something that you, you can do something with, they understood the community, they understood it came locally, so there's no food miles, it's sustainable. And these are all the words that are important to, to young people nowadays. And I was so thrilled at the number of kids who came up to me afterwards and said, you know, that was a fantastic experience. Thank you very much. You know, I will be looking for, for that sort of thing. But the problem lies, you know, not with the children. It lies with their parents um, who say, oh, no, I'm not having a, it's a bottom feeder. 
<laughs> which conjures up all sorts of imaginations. And we have this big problem in Scotland is that, you know, there is a reluctance to eat these fish. And if only we can get the children, um, and this is where I try to get kids to, to cook in schools, and it's a very, very difficult task. You know, government doesn't seem to listen. They don't seem to understand that actually, if you really want a healthy nation, you've got to teach the kids how to cook, where their food comes from, and enjoy doing it. Um, children will eat anything if they know where it comes from and how it's been prepared. I love cooking fish with children. They're so interested and, and we just need to give them an opportunity. And in the East Nuke, here we are, you know, a lot of the community are fisher folk and it's their children. Talking about schools, one of the issues I think is rather interesting with regards to fish is procurement. So my sons, on a Friday, they come home with a little packed lunch from their school, which is very generously provided. They like sandwiches. The sandwiches always contain tuna. I am interested to note they think it's delicious. Have you had any involvement or any insight into public procurement of fish? Uh, oh, no is the answer to that one. I mean, I have tried in the past to to encourage um, the local council to procure locally. And, you know, I know it can be done sustainably. I mean, I, I, there's a wonderful story of a hospital in London. This is going back 15 odd years. The guy who was responsible for buying the food for the hospital worked really hard to, to go as locally as he could. I mean, London, obviously, you don't have a farm, you know, on Westminster Bridge anymore. But um, you go, you know, you have to go further afield for whatever. But he worked incredibly hard to use local producers. But that's the point, is that if you can be bothered and you do put in the extra work to get it, because a lot of these big buyers complain that they can't buy locally because they can't fulfill the constant need for large quantity. Well, my argument for that is, well, you, you need to do a little bit harder work and you need to work with the community and say, OK, so when this guy runs out of whatever it is he's got, then we can move on to this or have a slightly different fish. It means more work. Yes. But what's wrong with that? It makes life more interesting. The procurement officer just wants to press a button and say, yeah, 10,000 tins of tuna. That's terrific. Thank you very much indeed. And forget about it. We're actually with a bit of imagination. We can do so much better than that. And the health, and that's the important bit, that's what this is all about, is the health of the nation and the economy will be so much better. Christopher, this has been so fascinating. And you and I have spoken quite a lot over the past few months and there's, there's already that, so much that I've learned, but I, I really have learned so much more again in our conversation today. Finally, you have written this book. Where, where can people buy your book? Or indeed, if they want to stock your book, where can they get hold of a copy? Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem with the self-published book is that you don't have a major distributor. Um, I am looking, hopefully, to work with a, a distributor, but that doesn't mean to say it's going to go absolutely everywhere. I mean, I'm in particularly wanting fishmongers to, to sell this book for obvious reasons. Um, so if, if you're a fishmonger listening to this, please get in touch. I mean, my, my email is on is on uh, my website. Um, I mean, the book itself will be will be available for sale on my website, along with all my other vegetable cookbooks. Um, Waterstones um, across Scotland will sell it. Certainly it'll be in the St Andrews one because that's my nearest one. But if you go into any Waterstones um, in the country, that's not just Scotland, they, they should um, get it for you. And then I, I, I have a sort of series of, of, of shops locally. But if, it, if there is a shop out there who is really interested in, in selling the book, they get in touch. And wonderful photographs taken by my wonderful wife. May as well get that in. 
Christopher, that's been wonderful. So interesting. So much ground covered. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking with Christopher Trotter and I hope you enjoyed listening. Earlier this year, Monty recorded two brilliant on-farm episodes on the history of Scottish salmon production. So if you've enjoyed today's chat, scroll back through the feed and find those. On Farm is brought to you by Anna, Monty, me and all the team here at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. Wishing you a great week and see you next Monday.